you being patient with me, what we're going to do this morning is sort of finish up uh, the verses that we had set aside to study in the month of February. That's how far behind we are. Um, and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, so you want to turn your Bibles there, we're going to look a couple passages in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Maybe if you're visiting with us from the community, or uh, maybe this is uh, one of your initial times in an assembly of uh, the Church of Christ, uh, that you may have noticed at times that there are things different in our assembly than maybe some other religious bodies that you have um, uh, attended. And one thing I think that sometimes uh, individuals find different is that when they are here for a little while, they notice that, uh, that we don't uh, utilize any women preachers. There are no women in the pulpits. Um, and that uh, those who lead the congregation are men. Uh, and sometimes people might think, well, that's because uh, the congregation hasn't just caught up to the times or that uh, there are no women who are, uh, who are qualified enough to be able to teach. Uh, and none of that's true. Uh, what I want to present uh, this morning is the biblical basis on why that is true, why they, that the, those who speak from the pulpit are men. Uh, and those who lead the congregation are men. And that's, of course, what's involved uh, in the passage that we're going to look at. Yeah, there we go. Uh, the passage we're going to look at in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Now, I would suggest to you that nothing has changed more in the public assemblies of, uh, of churches and religious bodies today over the last two decades uh, than the role of women. Uh, we recognize that everywhere we look, if you recognize what's going on in religion, that, that, the, uh, that there are more and more women who are leading congregations. Um, one study I noticed using the word pastor in the prevalent denominational sense of church leader or preacher, uh, the Barnes pastor poll said that the number of female pastors in the Protestant church leadership has doubled over the past 10 years. That presently one of every 11 Protestant pastors is a woman. That's triple as many as 25 years ago. And interestingly enough, there are more women students in seminaries today than there are men. So not only does it look to what's going on now, uh, as a very drastic cultural pra- change in, in practice, but as well even what pretends for the future. Even among churches of Christ, the movement of women in positions of leadership uh, and the public teaching has been very pervasive. Many churches now have worship leader teams that include both men and women. Uh, and what's re- remarkable as we look at that is that, uh, as we see in not only this area, but in many areas, that um, it's, re- it's remarkable how much the culture influences the church in every generation, not only in ours, but in generations even in the past. And no doubt that will be true in the future as well. But what's that mean? What are we to take from that? Well, I think what we recognize is that from a purely cultural viewpoint, many, if not most, would applaud such a change that women are coming in to positions that they had never been before and that they're given opportunities that they did not take before. That from that, fa- from that standpoint, uh, this, many would say this is a good thing. What we recognize as well is certainly there are many women who excel in their ability to teach and, and preach publicly. Uh, certainly that's been true from a standpoint of writing uh, to be seen for many generations. Uh, is that there are many women who write exceptionally and talk and, and teach about 
the Bible uh, in a very exceptional ways. So what, what, what we recognize is that the talent of women to participate in that way in an assembly is certainly present. And what we recognize as well that there is a lot of pressure from the changing culture of God's people. That to not change from the perspective of having women in the pulpit or women in positions of leadership is to confront a great deal of social pressure to be politically correct. And that certainly has taken its toll, I believe, on God's people as well. Not only in this particular issue, but maybe on others, certainly on others as well. But what I want to talk about this morning is what does the Bible teach? Are the reasons we are to consider this simply cultural? Are they the th- reasons we might make it make a change to de- decide to change what's taking place? Merely a matter of preference or what we congregationally would decide? Is this a matter of consensus? Or does the Bible teach specifically about what God wants? And I want to take a couple minutes and try to understand the Apostles' words here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 because I believe that these particular passage and others are going to look at have a direct influence on why God's people have not changed as the culture has changed over these issues. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. This is the second installment on uh, uh, of our series on women professing godliness and the first part of this last week we talked about uh, the aspect of dress. Paul in the verses just before this talks about the women dressing with modesty and propriety and shamefastness and that there was a spirit, an attitude that was reflected even in what an individual put on and we made some applications of that as well. In that particular, partic- that particular lesson we mentioned the context and that the context beginning in the, all the way back to where he talks about men lifting up their hands holy hands to pray to God would indicate that he's talking about the relationship or the role between men and women because he uses a specific noun for men gender specific noun for men and for women in these passages but he's talking about gender roles and about the different responsibilities some that apply to the men some that apply specifically to the women so the context of this passage I think continues on in that that what Paul is presenting here is the aspect of gender relationships or gender roles. Now, is that, is that confined to the assembly is, uh, itself? Is what Paul is talking about restricted to the assembly? And my answer to that would be no. We, know, we recognize that men are to pray everywhere, not just in the assembly, but they are to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And certainly we would recognize that God's commandments that we looked at earlier about dressing modestly and, uh, and having a quiet and meek spirit would apply not just to the assembly, but would apply in every aspect of a, per, of a person's life. So what I want to suggest to you is that we carry on in that context as we look at these passages. That this Paul is talking about things that have application in the assembly, but they are not restricted to what takes place in the assembly. That 1 Timothy chapter 2 is best to be viewed as a general teaching on the submission in relation to the submissive role of women uh, to men in a general way. So he says, let a woman learn in silence. The word learn there is significant to the text, I believe. The idea of let means to allow, and what he's presenting here is that the position of the woman is to learn. Now that doesn't mean men are not to be learners, but he's just talked about the aspect you see of men leading in, in the aspect of leading in prayer. 
And he's going to talk about this aspect of teaching as one who would be a pupil and one who would be a student or one who would learn. And he begins by saying, let the woman learn. Now we might notice that as somewhat being insignificant to us today because certainly we recognize that women learn, but I think we recognize in the context of Paul's day, in the first century, especially in the Greek culture, uh, that was a pretty profound statement to make to give women the opportunity to learn because there were not many opportunities for women to learn in the first century. The, the culture itself did not encourage it. They weren't considered to be individuals who would be in positions to be able to teach others or speak in, in, in any public way and therefore why did women need to learn? Well, they needed to learn not only for themselves in order to understand what God would have them to know and have them to do, but as well what we're going to notice later on is that there are times in which women were expected to teach others. That this learning has a direct relationship to the, to the process of teaching because women are not forbidden to teach in every circumstance. And if a person is going to teach, then certainly they need to learn. But he qualifies this here and he says they are to, the women is to learn in silence. Well, what does silence mean here? Well, I think, I think I know what it means sometimes in the English language. Uh, if I walk into a library and the lady goes, shh, silent. That means I better quit talking and not make any noise. That he's talking about the aspect of creating an environment where nobody's saying anything. But is that what's being talked about here? Is Paul saying that the woman is to be absolutely silent and not speak at all? And or do we apply this to the aspect of just the assembly when we make that statement or when Paul makes this statement? The Greek word for silence, hesukia, uh, means to be quiet. Or more specifically, it means to not meddle or to mind your own business, so to speak. One lexicon says it denotes keeping one's seat, being undisturbed or not disturbing other individuals. We might notice that the New American Standard Bible, the NIV and the ASV, and I would encourage you to read other translations of these passages, uses the word quietness, which I think is a very appropriate definition of this word hesokia. It means to be quiet. So Paul is not saying in this context, when he says a woman is to be silent, that she's not to say anything, that she's not to say a word. We might notice in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Paul, Peter uses the same particular terminology. He said, do not let your adornments be merely outward, arranging hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Peter used the word for silent here, he that's translated in this passage as quiet, to determine, to depict the aspect of an attitude that women are to be quiet in spirit or demeanor, and that that quiet demeanor, that submissive demeanor, is very precious in the sight of God. Another interesting passage is 2 Timothy chapter three and verse, Second Thessalonians chapter three and verse twelve, where Paul commands all Christians to work in quietness and eat their own bread. So that's the same word. Hesukia, what's Paul saying? That when you go to work, you shouldn't say a word? That it's, uh, it's being lawful for the Christian to speak in his, in his place of employment? He's to work in quietness? No, it means you're not to disturb other individuals. You are to be submissive in that respect. You are to be quiet in the sense you see that you would be someone uh, who would uh, mind their own business, so to speak. So what we recognize is that the word itself for silence here means submissiveness. It means an undisturbing disposition. It is, as in essence, quietness. Now, additionally, Paul cannot be requiring absolute silence in 1 Timothy chapter 2 because if that were true, then women could not sing songs. And certainly they're commanded to sing songs. They could not, they could not confess their sins, even in the public assembly, but certainly before others. 
So when Paul says the women is to keep silent, he's not saying they cannot say anything because that would contradict other places where they are actually given commandments to speak. And certainly we put in the aspect of teaching, uh, women are commanded to teach in other places, and so to be silent must be modified by the aspect of the other requirements or commandments that women are given. Now, the nature and the foundation of this silence is placed in the middle. You might notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Paul says the woman is to be silent, and then later on he uses the same word again, and he says they'd be submissive in silence. So he puts silence twice in the passage, and in between the two uses of that terminology, he says they are to be silent with all submission. And I believe that submission is the key to a woman's role, not only in her home, but as well even within the church. That submissiveness is specifically applied to the woman's role within the home, Ephesians chapter 5 and other places, and we're going to look at even from the standpoint of the Old Testament teaching. But what submission is Paul talking about here? Her submission to God? Well, certainly she is to be submissive to God. But I believe when he says with all submissiveness or all submission, he's talking about the submission that she has in a gender role between men and women, that she is to be submissive to her husband, that women are to be submissive to men in terms of the role, the role of leadership within the church. She is to learn. She is to learn in silence because she is placed in a position of submission. Now the next phrase, I think, maybe is a, is a part of this particular uh, passage that maybe causes us the most concern, or at least one that we need to look at carefully because it's one that the, the feminist philosophy of our day uh, many times does not want to deal with at all or explain away, where Paul specifically says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, verse 12. Well, I think what we recognize in the passage, we put it together, that this tells us how the woman displays her quietness. How is she to display her silence? If it doesn't mean being quiet, then what does it mean for her to be silent? Well, Paul says that she is not permitted to teach in a circumstance where she would have authority over a man. Now, I underline that because I believe both of those phrases are descriptive of the aspect of what it means to be silent. She is not permitted to teach over a man. This does not forbid her from all teaching. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, certainly he's not saying that she can never teach under any circumstances. We know that's true because Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that women are to teach. The older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so to train the young women to love their husbands and their children. The word train there is also translated teach in other places in the scripture. It has more to do with the, or the connotation of it has to do with the aspect of hands-on teaching. But certainly what Paul's saying here is that there are circumstances when a woman can teach. She can teach children. She can teach other women. I'm suggesting to you the, Paul, the passage is really saying to us she can teach in those circumstances when she is not teaching over a man. I would suggest to you that even this passage is not saying that it's forbidden for a woman to teach a man. In Acts chapter 38, in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, Paul tells us that Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos aside and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. What's significant in that passage in Acts chapter 18 is that the verbs themselves are in plural in the tense, both the verb to take aside and to explain. So what would it tell us is that both Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. So here you have a biblical example of a woman teaching a man. But under what circumstances? Under what position was she teaching the man? She was not teaching over Apollos, nor was she teaching over her husband. But she was teaching under the authority or submissive to her husband as they taught together. 
Now again, subjection is the key to that. Understanding the overall position of a woman and submissiveness to a man is how we understand what Paul says here and how we can understand the words that are being taught. She can teach as long as she's under subjection. She can teach as long as she's not taking authority or or taking the lead in an assembly we might recognize. Now, where does that come in? Well, I don't believe we can really make a a full understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 2 without looking at a passage similar to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is a specific application of the command of 1 Timothy chapter 2. How is it that a woman is to be quiet and learn in silence in terms of the assembly together? Well, Paul addresses that to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the church work or the church activity or the roles of individuals in the church work. We read several passages together beginning in verse 26 because that helps us set the context. In chapter 14, verse 26, How is it then, brothers... Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. If any person speaks in another language, there should be only two, or at most three, each in turn, and someone must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and others should evaluate. But if, some, but if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet, prophet should keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are under the control of the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation of that passage. Now, I think what we recognize is that this particular passage, again, speaks to the very element of a woman speaking in an assembly specifically. And she is told, again, to be silent. We'll talk about what that word silent there means. But what I want to suggest to you as I look at this passage and look at the context of the passage is that what is presented to us here, what's in view, is an example how the principal teaching of 1 1 Timothy chapter 2 could be violated. A woman is told to be quiet, to be in quietness, or to be silent. How could she violate that particular principle? It's not a new teaching, 1 Timothy chapter 2, but it is a specific application. When 1 Timothy 2 taught the principle of subjection and quietness, then certainly that applied to every circumstance, not just to the assembly. But 1 Corinthians 14 focuses on a particular violation within the assembly. And the reason I know that is, again, by looking at the context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14, the apostle is almost entirely focused on the conduct of the church in the use of spiritual gifts. And we read through these passages, and sometimes we read through them rather quickly, we immediately recognize that he's talking about the use of miraculous spiritual gifts within the church at Corinth and how they were doing it all wrong, how they were elevating some, some gifts above another, and that they were missing the point to a great extent and what the purpose of those gifts were, and that was to teach and to edify. And so in chapter 12, he talks about the use of individual miraculous gifts. There's one spirit, but many gifts. In chapter 13, he interludes a t- teaching about love and says they should, they, should decide, they, they should seek after love rather than spiritual gifts because the practice of love is superior to even a miraculous gift. And then chapter 14, he speaks about the orderly use of those gifts in the assembly. 
So we can't really look at what's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 without understanding that Paul is talking about what takes place in the assembly. In fact, what he says there is when you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, each one has a tongue, a revelation, has an interpretation. He's talking about what was taking place in their assembly and the use of miracle gifts. When you come together, there's a person who has a spirit-inspired song to sing. There's a person who has an interpretation of a particular tongue or speaking in another language. The person who has a prophecy or speaking from God. What he says is, everything must be done decently in order. Everything must be done for the edification of the whole group. And that's the, pur- that's the purpose of the assembly. What I also notice is that the type of the assembly is, what the, is, is the specific context of Paul's words here. The type of assembly is an assembly where there is instruction being given to a group of individuals by a single individual. That this is an instructional assembly for the purpose of being built up or the purpose of being edified. It was an instructional in the sense that one person would be the to do the teaching and would lead the assembly. Now we'll notice how that comes about in looking at the text because what he says is that when you use these gifts, you can't use them all at the same time. When he's talking to the men and he's talking about one who is a prophet or one who would speak in a tongue, he says that they must be silent. And that's what we recognize is that there are three uses of the term silent in this context. There are three people that are, called, that are told to be silent. And we'll look at, what the, at those individuals uh, in just a moment. But the word silent here is a different word than Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, this particular word here is the word sigeo, uh, which means to keep silent or it means to keep closed or to hold one piece. It means to not say a word. So it's a different word and therefore conveying a different idea. It doesn't just mean to be quiet. It means to not say anything, to be silent. What is involved here in being absolutely silent in the assembly is what Paul says exclusively said only to the woman that she is never to say anything in an assembly. My answer to that would be no. Look at the context. That there are three individuals in this context that are not that are to be silent in the assembly. And the use of that term in the context means the same thing. In verse 28, the tongue speaker must keep silent if there's no interpreter. If he's speaking another language and there's no one there to interpret that language, then he must be silent even though he has a revelation to speak in another tongue. In verse 30, the prophet must be silent while another prophet is speaking or while another prophet is prophesying. He must be quiet so that they're not all doing it at the same time. Again, the aspect of edification, people understanding what's being taught, and the idea of being things being done decently in order. And then in verse 35, he says the woman is to be silent. She is not to speak at all in the assembly. It's a disgrace for her to speak in the assembly. Now, you consider the question from the standpoint of the context itself. Though the word means absolute silence, did it mean that the man or the woman, the, 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 the tongue speaker or the prophet could never speak at any other time? Consider this question. Could the tongue speaker or the prophet speak at other times in the assembly? Could they lead singing? Could they lead in prayer? Well, certainly they could. So when he told the tongue speaker, be silent, what was he saying? When You're to be silent if there's no interpreter there. But if you see you're doing something else in the assembly besides speaking in a tongue, you could speak, certainly the man could speak. The prophet, could he speak? Could he lead in a prayer or could he lead in singing? Could he participate in the assembly by saying something in another way if he was not prophesying? Well, certainly he could. 
So the silence, you see, was conditional in regard to leading the assembly. When was he silent? When he was standing up before the group and there was someone else who either could not interpret what he was going to say or there was someone else who had another revelation to give. He was to be silent in terms of leading the assembly. So when I get to verse 35 and Paul says, let the women keep silent in the assembly, could I also recognize that her silence was conditioned in regarding to leading the assembly. He wasn't saying that women couldn't speak when they come into a church building or that when they were together they weren't to say anything. But rather that in regards of leading the assembly, their silence was conditional just as the silence of the tongue speaker and the silence of the prophet was conditional. It was conditional on the aspect of leading the assembly. Now what I would suggest to you why that makes sense to me is that's precisely what Paul was teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 2. That women were not to teach in a circumstance where they would take authority over a man. It didn't mean they could never teach. We just saw where they were commanded to teach. But the command not to teach and to be submissive was based upon a circumstance where in that teaching they would be unsubmissive by taking authority away from a man. So certainly we recognize that these two passages, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, fit together. That Paul's not teaching a different doctrine in one and the other. It's not even the aspect of the aspect of what takes place in a building, what takes place out of a building, but rather the aspect of the type of assembly and the actual circumstance of what's taking place as to whether or not a woman was to be quiet or whether or not she was to speak. Think about this, husbands. Husbands, wives would be submissive to their husbands. If your wife is your wife being unsubmissive to you if she speaks to you? If she says a word, is she being unsubmissive? Is she usurping your authority as the head of the family every time she talks? You immediately say, no, that's not right. That's not right. There are times when my wife would talk to me, when she would speak to me, and that doesn't in any way reflect that she's being unsubmissive. Now, she could speak in a way that would very much violate the conditions of submissiveness and the role that she has as a wife. And when we think about this aspect, you see, it depends on what's being said depending on how she says it and under what context and what she's accomplishing by what trying to accomplish by what she says what if on Sunday morning I'm preaching and a woman stands up and objects to the teachings I'm, that I'm presenting here and says no that's not the way it is this is the way that it is she's in violation of God's law she's taking authority away from the man who's leading the assembly now that's what was happening at Corinth I believe is that you had wise, maybe even the wives of the prophets, some suggest, who were standing up in the assembly and saying, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, I have a teaching. And Paul's saying, no, women must be silent in the assemblies. They are not to be in a position of leadership. He gives, gives specific directions then concerning that. There was no place for a woman to take the lead. They were not to have authority over a man. Now another aspect of this, is the, in verse 34, and explaining this aspect of women being silent and not taking authority away from a man or being submissive, he says, as the law also says. That's an interesting little phrase there that Paul throws in. As the law says or also says. Well, what laws is he speaking about there? Well, I believe the law here refers to the Old Testament law of the Jews. If that's not what it refers to, I don't know what law it would be because Paul was not telling them to come under submission to some cultural law. But he says, as the law says. So it's the Old Testament law of the Jews. What Old Testament passage teaches the principle that Paul just spoke about in 1 Corinthians 14 when he told women to be silent and not take authority over a man? 
I don't know of any Old Testament passage that for, would specifically forbid a woman from speaking in an assembly. In fact, we have occasions where we have examples of women who spoke in an assembly. But they did it in a way that did not usurp authority or in a way which maintained their submissiveness. In Numbers 27 and in Joshua chapter 17, the daughters of Zelophehad addressed the whole assembly of Israel and brought a particular issue to the front of the assembly that needed to be resolved. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, the prophetess Huldah spoke as the mouthpiece of the Lord in that passage. So she spoke before the assembly of Israel. And there are other places where it talks about women being in a position of speaking God's word as prophetesses. So how do we resolve that? Or how does that fit into what's being taught here? Well, I would suggest to you that none of those were violations of the principle that Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 14 or in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And that Paul could put in there that phrase as the law says because the overall principle of the law was not found in particular exemptions or exceptions to it, but rather into the principle of submissiveness that goes all the way back to creation. Now the reason I would make that connection is because when Paul in 1 Timothy 2 is giving this this teaching about a woman learning in silence and being quiet and submissive, he points back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. He says, For Adam was first formed and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So in both places, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul references the aspect of submissiveness and the role of a woman back to the Old Testament. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he specifically mentions the aspect of creation. That a woman was to be silent. Why? Because she was created after Adam, a matter, you see, of seniority and creation. Because the woman was deceived and not the man in, the, in the Genesis chapter 3 in the introduction of sin. And Paul mentions those specific reasons, not to denigrate a woman in the activity of the sin of Genesis chapter 3, but to show that those things provide the foundation for the submissive role that women are to be in and have always been in since the marriage relationship was begun. So a woman's silence, whether it has to do with in or outside the assembly, is in recognition and harmony with her gender role. She is not to take the lead. Now that's significant for us to recognize in a culture where gender roles are being completely dismissed. And gender roles are not even, in many people's thinking, not even that which was determined by creation or has any link to the aspect of being created by God. Paul links it all. So what we recognize in this, I believe, is that the scripture or the law is teaching one kind of silence in regard to women teaching. Only one kind of silence. Silence in regard to leading or taking authority. That that's what it means in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and that's specifically what Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is how the women at Corinth were violating the principles of the Genesis law, as well as the principles of 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is what Paul was teaching, is that women must be submissive, and they cannot override or take authority away from men, and that certainly would take place if she got up and spoke in an assembly. So when a woman is forbidden from teaching or speaking in assembly, when is that forbidden? When she is speaking or taking authority over a man. As long as she doesn't violate this law of submissiveness, I'm absolutely convicted that a woman can speak and ask questions and make comments in the physical presence of an assembly as long as she does not take the lead or take authority over a man. And I think that that 
helps me to understand how the law, how God's law on the role of women is not cumbered up with contradictions from one passage to another, or how I could strive in my own thinking and certainly in my own practice to be consistent with what the Bible says, is to recognize the submissiveness of a woman in a marriage relationship established in Genesis chapter 2, and the relationship that a woman would have over men in an assembly or a church is still intact and always has been intact, and it's the foundation from which Paul could say, on certain circumstances I permit not a woman to teach. It wasn't arbitrary. Nor was it simply restricted to whether or not a person was inside or outside of a building or whether or not the assembly was at 10.30 or 8.30. But rather, when she's speaking, is she taking authority away from a man? Is she speaking in such a way, you see, that she's not in submissiveness to a man? Is she teaching in a way that would take authority away from a man or put herself in a position of authority over a man? Then she would be in violation of those principles. The rest of this passage also, I think, is is vitally significant, though it's a difficult passage, and that's verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, nevertheless, we ought to always pay attention when God's, when, when the scriptures say nevertheless, because it's showing that here's something that's a stated fact, but here's something that, in, in essence, continues to be true, even though this is true. And what he's just been speaking about, you see, is that women are to be quiet and submissive as a general rule, and the idea here that that came about as a result of the order of creation and even the events of Genesis chapter 3. That she is to be submissive because of this. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now this is a very, I'm convinced, a very difficult passage. If you read comments on 1 Timothy 2.15, you're going to find, you could fill up a book with the ways in which people have interpreted this particular passage. Sometimes it's good to look at the way, the way other translations uh, of the scriptures then present this. And New American Standard says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The Good News translation says, but a woman will be saved through having children if she perseveres in faith and love and holiness with modesty. God's Word translation says, However, she and all women will be saved through the birth of the child if they lead respectable lives in faith and love and holiness. What's this passage teach? Well, contextual, I believe, it connects, as I mentioned, to the events of Genesis 3 and the introduction of sin into the world because Eve was being deceived and the aspect of the submissive position of a woman, which Peter calls a weaker position because of her vulnerability. There are two prominent views on how women are saved by childbearing. One is that salvation is the result of the physical birth of Jesus. The idea here that women, given the very blessed position of bearing children, and in the process of bearing children, there was one child that would be born that would save the world and ultimately save her and all women. That despite Eve's part in the presence of sin, God determined to send a Savior to the world. How would He do that? He would serve. He would send a Savior through procreation, through the ability of a woman to have a child. And the miraculous birth of Jesus without the participation of a man even emphasized the aspect that this is the avenue through which God would send the Savior would be through woman. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first prophecy of salvation, that it would be the seed of woman that would conquer Satan. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was born of woman in the right time to bring about the salvation of man. 
So it may be that what Paul's saying here is that woman will be saved and all women will be saved through the ultimate fruit of her God-given ability to bear children. And the ultimate fruit of that would be the Christ child, Jesus born into the world. That's powerful if that's what that means. Particularly as I think about how a woman must relate to that. It's also rather ironic, and I'll throw this in, that this truth is drastically contrasted, I believe, with the total denial of our culture of the sacred life of the womb uh, in the womb of a woman. That life in the womb and the ability of a woman to bring life within the womb is the very main by which God would save the whole world and for Satan to be able to culturally convince individuals that there is no life in the womb, that what's in the womb is not really life, you see, is an attack on that very plan and that very process. And maybe even the scripture itself. And ironically, the so-called rights of the woman are placed before the value of the woman that Paul addresses here, and that is the value of the woman as one who bears a child. Why is a woman important? Well, one very big reason is because a woman can bear a child. She's the only one who can bear a child. Thereby, she is saved by that unique ability that she has to bring children into the world. The other uh, uh, comment... A prominent explanation of this passage is that salvation is the result of faithful obedience to her God-given role. That the term childbearing in the passage is a figure of speech that stands for the complete role of women in the home. In this position of submissiveness, being put under the leadership of a man, she is, her childbearing re- relationship is that she is to be in the home. And Paul depicts that, the aspect that the woman's role of, uh, of submissiveness, not only to her husband, but to God as well, is her ability to superintend the home. So the woman is saved by being faithful to this God-given role, that if she's to be saved, she must be saved within this role and not taking the prerogative to go outside the role of being one who would be the family superintendent or be the one who would be caring for the home. If she continues in that role with faith and love and holiness and modesty, she will be saved. So Paul's saying about the woman the same thing he would say about the man and all of us. That is, if we are to be saved, we must be saved within the particular role that God has given us to perform. We have no right to jump outside that role. In fact, there's a sense in which the Scriptures describe sin as the opposite of that. Jude talks about angels that left their proper habitation, that decided to be like God, and they're cast down to heaven. The idea that men, that the roles that God placed both men and women in are, are and sometimes in society desecrated, lead to further sin. And you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and you recognize that's exactly what Satan was attempting to do and what he did accomplish. And that's what Paul's mentioning in 1 Timothy chapter 2 makes it significant. Why did Satan go to the woman to eat? Because she wasn't as smart? Because she just would give in more? Because she was vulnerable or giddy or whatever? I read some commentators that make that point. Well, you know, the woman just wasn't as stable as the man, so Satan went to the woman. I don't believe that for a second. I know enough about myself and about the woman I'm married to to know that stability is not on my side. I believe he went to the woman because his attempt was not just to get people to sin but rather to destroy the relationship of the husband and wife and to get her to abrogate his, her role in being submissive and to get him to neglect his role in being the leader. And he did it, didn't he? And that's why Paul says Eve was deceived because God got her to give up on her God-given role. But Paul says if a woman is faithful in that role. If she stays there, she will be saved. Just as a man must leave his family to be saved. Now, in conclusion, how we decide this issue of whether or not 
we will allow women in the pulpit or positions of leadership in the church. You know, when researching this, I read some articles on both sides, and there is a lot to be read out there about this particular issue because it is so emerging in our society today. And there are a lot of folks that argue the other side that I'm presenting here this morning, that women ought to be allowed in positions of leadership, that they ought to be put in positions where they would preach from the pulpit. And what were the reasons given for that? Well, a few of them were pretty compelling. That women could use their gifts and their talents before God. That women are smart. That women are articulate. That they're qualified. That women are more apt at peacemaking and problem solving than men are. That there are a lot of things that women do better than men that directly apply to the aspect of the working of people together. And certainly, one of the compelling arguments we're given is that it would make the church more appealing to the culture it's trying to reach. Because women could speak to women even publicly. And there are a lot of more compelling arguments that we could list right out of the words of those who are making the plea and ultimately pushing and promoting the aspect of putting women in positions of leadership. But there's one thing I thought about all of those arguments. They were all arguments and reasons from the culture. They were all arguments that focused on us. And i got to suggest to you what Brent said was true. It's not about us. The church is not about us. The church is about God. The church is about what God wants. To the praise of His glory is what it's all about. All the arguments that I read on the other side that said that women should not be in positions of leadership, that men should take that role and take that responsibility, all of those arguments rested in what the Scripture said. Do you understand that? There's only one reason why a woman should not be in a pulpit preaching today. Because of what God's Word said. There are no logical reasons outside of what the Scripture says that would keep a woman from being in the pulpit and excelling in that position, except that what the Bible says about it is that she's to learn in silence and not take the leadership role. So we've got to do is decide. What reason will we use to decide this particular issue? How we come to a conclusion? It will either be on the Scriptures or it will be on something else. And what the Scriptures teach, you see, is what God says is important. And what's certainly true is that for God's people, the words that He says are always enough. And that's the, that's the kind of place we're in, right? Is what God says in these passages, is that enough? Or do we need something else to corroborate it? Do we need to reconcile it with something else? Or are these passages and properly understanding, is it enough to rest to what we will do and the practice we will engage in? For God's people, God's word's always been enough. And I hope that we'll stand there as well. Thank you for your attention. Certainly when it comes to the aspect of becoming a Christian, that particular issue is is forefront. How are you going to decide what pleases God? How will we decide how a person becomes a Christian? There are a lot of answers out there. Answers that please men, appeal to men, that are given different perspectives of the teachings of different churches. What I would call you to is what the Scriptures actually say. Go to what God says. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Let every one of you repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Answer that calling. Answer the words of God and you'll become a Christian. Can we help you while we stand and while we sing?